The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for the Messenger in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for news radio station KNX in Los Angeles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, calls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about politics and policy. In the first half hour, Charlie Cook, the founder of the Cook Political Report, Uh, joins us to discuss the political impact of the uh, possibility of a uh, government shutdown. And also, he takes a good hard look at the presidential race. Then in the second half hour, Dr. Robert Bollinger, professor of infectious diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, discusses the new COVID Uh, epidemic that is sweeping the nation. Before we go to our first guest, we're going to hear this clip. Uh, This is uh, Representative Nancy Grace, a Republican from South Carolina, uh, talking about uh, the political impact of a government shutdown. Wow. Do you think Republicans take a black eye for that? Well, it's always going to be blamed on the Republicans, but if you are watching and you're paying attention to what the federal government and Congress has done over the last 20 or 30 years, you would know that this problem was created by both sides of the aisle. That was Representative Nancy Mace from Republican from South Carolina uh, talking about the political impact of a possible government shutdown. Our guest in this half hour is Charlie Cook, founder of the Cook Political Report and one of the nation's foremost political observers. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Charlie. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on, Brad. Okay, let's start with uh, the uh, political impact of a government shutdown. It's already a mess, and I guess even if there's not a shutdown, there'll be some political impact from coming so close to the brink if we uh, if we don't go over the brink. Uh, what's your assessment of the uh, politics of uh, this battle over the federal budget? Well, what normally happens is that if you've, that a president usually comes out in, a, in looking better, or the, you're never rare, rarely any winners coming out of a government shutdown, but uh, presidents usually do better because they're speaking with one voice and Congress is speaking with many voices, uh, usually too many voices, and it, it's hard for them to have a coherent message. Okay, that's the standard response. 
This is one, and normally you could put at least a little bit of blame on both sides. This one, no. I mean, you can't blame Hakeem Jeffries or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. This is a fight. You can't blame Mitch McConnell. This is a fight between elements of House Republicans. And you've got sort of the burn the house down faction of the party. And then you've got more of the legacy, old fashioned mainstream side. And Speaker McCarthy is trying to mediate it. Lead would be way too strong a word. Uh, and that they can declare, you know, this group of, uh, of um, um, really obstinate people can bring him down at any point. And the thing is, at some point along the way, with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president, some views of Democrats will have to be incorporated in here, and they just don't seem to realize that. And if they shut the House down, I mean, if they throw uh, McCarthy out until they get a new speaker, the House can only do two things. It can adjourn and it can and it could uh, uh, convene. That's it. It can't do anything. And so this is one that's going to be blamed, I think, you know, 100 or should be blamed 100 percent on Republicans, even though polling shows that, you know, a fair number blame Biden and Biden doesn't have anything to do with this. Okay, uh, let's uh, talk now about uh, the. Re- well, you know, I have this theory. It's not on you. Uh, one th- one thing's going to happen at the end of this week, uh, where McCarthy is going to pull a rabbit out of his hat, and there's going to be some kind uh, of agreement, at least for thirty days. Uh, that and if that does happen. Would imagine it's going to make uh, the members of the House Freedom Caucus, the conservative wing, very angry, and they'll lose the leverage they have to try to depose uh, uh, McCarthy. Uh, on the other hand, if there is a, uh, well, I think either McCarthy's going to go uh, if there is no shutdown, uh, or uh, they'll. What do you think is going to happen to McCarthy after all this? Well, I mean, I, I expect there will be a shutdown a week, two weeks, something like that. Um, I, I fully expect there will be one. Um, you know, they're always bad. They're horrible things to happen. It's not quite as uh, I mean, it's not uh, on a, It's not a 10 on a Richter scale like default on the debt. But but it's it's a, it's a bad hit. Um, I don't. The thing is, I think the only thing that's keeping McCarthy in, in some ways, is compared to who? I mean, who would they put in? And, you know, I don't know whether these knuckleheads realize that the House isn't really allowed to do anything if they, unless they re- replace him with somebody. And I don't know who in the heck could get uh, a, a majority, you know, can get, can get the Republican votes to replace McCarthy. So, uh, but I, I think this is going to get real ugly. It's going to look bad for a, a, you know, a good while longer. Uh, I don't think McCarthy's going to be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat and keep this thing from shutting down Saturday at midnight. Okay. Uh, let's turn to the presidential race. Uh, there's a Republican uh, presidential debate uh, Wednesday night. Uh, I'm not sure I want to call it a big Republican debate because the uh, 
guest of honor is not showing up, Donald Trump, and I'm not sure it matters a whole lot uh, what the other Republican presidential candidates can do. Uh, let me ask you this, Annie. You know, all the polls, including new polls that came over the weekend, show Trump with a might described as a massive lead uh, in the Republican presidential race. Do you think anybody, any of the other Republicans can stop him? No, I no, I think this thing's kind of done um, that um, it, it's uh, first of all, a debate, a Republican debate without Donald Trump. Is it did it even occur? You know, it's like the uh, tree falling in the woods and nobody hears it. Uh, so I think it will be, be of no consequence whatsoever uh, with Trump not in it. And quite frankly, I think unless uh, Trump, ha- former President Trump, has a some kind of adverse health event, uh, I can't imagine you know anyone else winning this nomination. And when I hear people say, "Well, but Trump's lead in the early states like Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina is it, it, his lead's not as wide as it is narrowly." Wait a minute, his leads in the early states are in the thirty-point mark in the thirties. Uh, so what if it's not in the 40s? I mean, you know, gigantic versus gargantuan. Uh, none of these guys are going to catch him. This thing's, you know, I think this nomination is is it's kind of done again, unless unless Trump has some kind of a, a health event. But this is a um, so I don't think this debate is of any consequence at all. And I think a lot of I, Republicans are, are trying to figure out what to do. I compared uh, these Republican presidential debates uh, without Trump uh, in my column for The Messenger to going to see Bruce Springsteen and get there and find out you're only seeing the E Street band play without Bruce while he's doing a gig somewhere else. Uh, Okay, we're going to resume the discussion of the uh, presidential race uh, when we get back from this break. Uh, we're going to give our radio lister- listeners a very short uh, four-minute break. But we're going to continue this interview with Charlie Cook, uh, the founder of the Cook Political Report and one of America's foremost political observers. Uh, when we uh, get back... Uh, and if you're listening to us um, on the on radio and you'd like to watch us, there are a couple ways you can do that. Uh, you can watch us on twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon, or you can watch us on facebook.com front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Uh, but either way, we'll be right back with more of uh, Charlie Cook. Uh, to this break uh, for our radio listeners and uh, I urge you to hang on because there's still a lot of good stuff to come. Welcome back Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. My guest in this half hour is Charlie Cook, the founder of the Cook Political Report. Uh, Charlie, let me probe into something you just said. What exactly is the problem uh, with Joe Biden's weak standing in the polls? I had a conversation with a Biden supporter last night, a friend of mine, uh, who said, you know, the economy is so much better now uh, than it was with Donald Trump. Uh, It's unfair that uh, he doesn't get much credit for it. So what is the deal on the economy? What what are Democrats missing? 
Well, I mean, I think it's age and the economy. I think there are just a lot of people who people who agree with Biden on a lot of things who just simply think that somebody who's 80, somebody will be 81, that that's just too old to be president. And the fact that they, you know, most of these people don't have a lot of confidence in the vice president just kind of uh, underscores that that point. But then on the economy, you know, Democrats tend to invite to define the economy in terms of the unemployment rate, which is, you know, at, at extremely low levels. But, you know, unemployment, not to sound cold hearted, but it affects, you know, usually single digits of people. Uh, but inflation affects everyone. And. There's just a lot of scar tissue here. There were people that had never experienced any form of inflation or not in memory, uh, or it was in a distant memory. And, you know, they remember all the assurances that we weren't going to have it. It wouldn't be bad. It would be transitory. So he's got, it's a, I think it's a dual problem of sort of age, appearance, health, and then uh, an economy, specifically inflation. And, you know, the ironic thing on the former point about age and health um, I think if you put Joe Biden and Donald Trump down the street and had them run a hundred yard dash, my guess is that Biden would win. But in politics, as you well know, appearance uh, is more important than reality. And he just looks so old and frail that that it, it's it's a huge liability. Let me ask you, you know, I, I have a hard time. I think in one of the new polls, I think it was the NBC poll. Uh, they asked uh, that question. They asked uh, how much of a concern uh, Joe Biden's age and health was. And it was a very high number. I think it was 77 percent or something like that. And they asked the same question about Donald Trump age and health. And it was only 47 percent. And, you know, my question is, I agree with you. I think if, you know, you looked at them side to side you know, Joe Biden looks like in a hell of a lot better shape than uh, Donald Trump. But why is it such a big deal with Biden and not much of a deal with Trump? Well, I mean, the thing is, I think, you know, and I'm not a physician, but uh, or an athletic trainer. But while I think that Biden himself is in uh, much better shape than Trump is, uh, but that if you just put a still picture next to each other, um, I'd say President Biden looks at least a dozen years older than Trump, even though the gap's only three years. But, you know, just to watch him, you know, when he walks, he's just frail looking. I mean, it's just where, again, it's more appearances than reality. But people do know that this is the most stressful. It's one of the most demanding jobs on the planet. And it'd be demanding on a 50-year-old, let alone an 80-year-old. So, um, you know, it's it, it may be unfair, but it's not unreasonable for people to be concerned about somebody who at the end of a second term would be closer to 90 than to 80. Um, you know, you can call it ageism if you want, but, um, you know, even a lot of older people look at it and say, gosh, nobody my age ought to be president. Uh, uh, you can find a lot of 80 year olds saying that. Okay. And, uh, well, let, let, let's get to the bottom line here. Uh, I, I think I don't know. I was going to say most Democrats, but maybe that's overstating the situation. Uh, don't think that for all the problems and everything, Donald Trump could beat uh, Joe Biden one on one. And, you know, many Democrats I talk to uh, seem to dismiss the possibility 
of hand. Uh, can Donald Trump beat Joe Biden in a, you know, in a matchup next uh, November? I would flip around and ask whether Joe Biden can win the Electoral College against Donald Trump, even if it is just one on one. And you want to throw in a no labels or a Cornell West or whatever, that just makes it worse. But when you consider just and we've talked about this many times, but, you know, you look at how many votes that Democrats sort of waste in running up the score in California, New York and Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, places like that. I mean, it was five point one million votes effectively flushed down the toilet in, you know, excess votes in California. And all those count in the national polls. So, I mean, I think that that uh, President Biden would need to be ahead by at least four or five and maybe six or even seven points uh, national popular vote before that's likely to translate into 270 electoral votes. So and that's that's just on a one on one race. Um, but, you know, the. uh, uh you know, the, the Democrats just sort of choose to look at what they want to see and ignore what they don't want to see. And the fact is, in what, seven of the last eight presidential elections, Democrats have wasted a whole lot of votes running up the score in big states. In fact, uh, 2004 was the only time since uh, Bill Clinton first ran that Republicans uh, wasted more votes than uh uh, than Democrats did. And in fact, uh, uh, the top seven dem- states in terms of wasted Democratic votes in seven out of the last eight, uh, the top or in four in a row, I should say, the top seven states have all been states won by Democrats. So um, I'd say stop, you know, look at the national polls and then start taking them apart and looking at what what states are under there and what's where where's the Where's the popular vote misleading, just as it was in 2000 for Al Gore and 2016 for for uh, Hillary Clinton and within 126,000 votes in 2020 of Joe Biden losing the presidency? Okay, Uh, let me ask you this question. Is there anything Joe Biden can do? There are still uh, 14 months until Election Day. Is there anything? What should Joe Biden be doing? You know, and I, I say all this as someone who's just known him a, a little bit for a long time and like him a great deal. I think in good faith, he decided to run again because he saw himself as the one person that could, that has beaten Donald Trump and that could. And and I think a decent case may have been made for that a year and a half ago. But I think you have a hard time making that case right now. And that just somebody that didn't have the crosses to bear of age and um and and inflation over the last three years, uh, I think anybody else would do that. So, I mean, I, I think you ought to, you know, basically say, uh, you know, we've gotten, an, I'm very proud of everything we've done. We've gotten a whole lot done. And I think it's time to uh, uh, give somebody else uh, a shot and open up the Democratic nomination just as, uh, just as uh, Obama did in 2008. And that um, um, uh, both in a 2000, or, or I should say 2000, and uh, uh, excuse me, Biden in uh, Obama in 2016, uh, and again in 2012, where he didn't endorse Biden until it was virtually until April, when it was effectively over. So uh, I think it's time to take a gold watch and a victory. Hey, Charlie, now. that's unfortunately the all the time we have. I want to thank our guest, Charlie Cook. 
founder of the Cook Political Report and one of America's foremost political analysts for joining us today on Deadline DC. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, I promised that we talk about politics and policy today. Uh, we talked about politics in the first half hour with Charlie Cook from the Political Report. In this half hour, we're going to switch to policy. Um, our guest is Dr. Robert Bollinger, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, he's here to talk about the COVID surge that is sweeping the nation. But before we bring on Dr. Bollinger, uh, let's listen to this clip. Uh, this is from CNN. Uh, and CNN medical analyst, uh, Dr. Jonathan Reiner. We are in a torrential surge of COVID right now. Okay. It's a little bit hard to know the exact numbers because states don't report cases anymore. And, and most of the testing is done uh, at home with you know, rapid uh, assays. But using wastewater sampling, uh, a model this week suggested that we're, we have about 650,000 new cases of COVID per day. Mm. And that's about as high as it ever was during the initial surges in 2020. And we're getting close to what it was at the peaks of Delta and Omicron. So there's a tremendous amount of COVID in the community. Hospitalizations have been up every week for the last eight weeks. Hospitalizations are up on the, in the last week about 10%. Deaths are up about 5%. That was uh, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, uh, the CNN uh, medical analyst, talking about the new surge of COVID. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Robert Bollinger, Professor of Infectious Diseases at John Hopkins University School of Medicine. Welcome back to Deadline ZC, Dr. Bollinger. Thanks, Brad. Nice to be here. Uh, let me ask you this. I, when I first saw that link, I said, boy, I had no idea. I knew there was a new wave of COVID uh, hearing, but I had no idea. He described it as torrential, which I thought was uh, very shocking. What's your assessment? Well, there's certainly a lot of cases, but the good news is um, the hospitalization rates are nowhere near what we had uh, in previous years. Um, and that's because we have a lot more people vaccinated and as well as, um, you know, community immunity from prior infections. That's really um, reducing the number of people that are seriously ill or hospitalized. We certainly have a subset of the population that continues to be at high risk, particularly older folks and uh, people with uh, underlying conditions, particularly if they have immune uh, immune issues. Um, but uh, but uh, you know we knew that this was coming. We could see the as I think he mentioned there was an increase in in uh, detection of of COVID in the wastewater systems that was that was going up for the last few weeks. And we're certainly seeing a lot of cases. I'm sure a lot of people listening have uh, had friends or family members who've had uh, COVID, but uh, most of it's been very mild, uh, fortunately, much different than it was earlier in the epidemic. Okay, and is this a, is this a new strain, uh, strain, doctor, or is this the repeat of what we've already seen? Well, this virus continues to to mutate. Um, it always has, and it probably always will. Uh, we're seeing um, new strains. The, the the most common strain uh, that's um, that's uh, transmitted these days is uh, related to earlier Omicron versions. So it's basically a, an offshoot of 
the earlier Omicrons. Um, and, and there's a, you know, there's a, a variety of strains, but the most prominent ones are continuing to be Omicron related. Okay. And uh, you think, uh, well, let me ask you, I think a lot of people now wondering, I gather uh, that the FDA Federal Drug Administration has approved a uh, new uh, vaccination for the new strain of COVID. That's right. Yep. And uh, should people be getting the new COVID vaccination? Oh, absolutely. I'm getting mine tomorrow. I'm getting my uh, COVID and my flu shot tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And I think uh, we should all do that. Uh, the, the, immunity, the reason we're seeing more s- symptomatic cases, I think, is immunity is waning. And, there, and we are seeing an increase in hospitalization. Again, it's not what, like what it was previously. But there's still people, um, you know, my age or older, and and um, and people with underlying conditions in particular uh, that should get vaccinated. So I'm certainly going to join that um, join that group tomorrow. Okay. And uh, do you, you know, let me ask you. This is more of a political question, I think, than a medical question. But uh, do you think there's going to be the same sort of resistance? uh to vaccination uh there was you know the last time when we had a a strong covid attack or do you think people are uh more willing to get vaccinated now because i i just you know i hate the thought that we're going to go through this another big battle on you know restrictions and vaccinations uh is there any evidence to suggest uh, what's going to happen in terms of vaccination rates? Well, the vaccination rates for the most recent booster are lower than what we would have hoped. So I'm sure there's going to continue to be people who are resistant to the idea of vaccination. And and uh, we're, I don't think we're going to have any vaccine mandates per se, like we had early on when we had such a high death rate, um, because I don't think there's a need for that at the moment. But I certainly would recommend that you know, people that are higher risk uh, get vaccinated. It's, it, listen, the vaccines, again, are designed, these current vaccines are designed not necessarily to prevent infection, but to prevent people like myself from getting sick and ending, really sick and ending up in the hospital with COVID. And that's the reason to get it. And so uh, people, particularly okay. at high risk, would, would get the vaccination. Okay. Uh, Along that lines, Brad, is that, you know, the other thing that wasn't mentioned is we're seeing a, an increase in uh, hospitalizations, unfortunately, in children as well with this current epidemic, particularly children under the age of five. Um, and that's because they have many of them haven't been vaccinated. And so um, that's that's something we need to continue to watch is uh, is the impact that this has, particularly on young children. So, you know, you said that the COVID virus continues to evolve uh, and we'll probably see another strain at some point. Uh, Is the secret to, you know, avoiding these cycles uh, just for everybody to get vaccinated? Would that do it? Yeah, I think uh, just like with we do with flu every year, we're going to presumably uh, get into a pattern where we have, um, you know, an update on a regular basis, probably annually uh, with uh, with the vaccine strains that are, uh, you know, aligned with whatever's circulating at the time. So just like we do every year with flu, um, I think that's where we're headed with with COVID vaccination. 
Okay. Uh, what, you know, uh, also, uh, will you explain to our audience what RSV is? It seems to be getting a lot of attention, and I don't think people know very much about it. RSV is a respiratory syncytial virus. It's a virus that we've known about for a long time. It's been around. Uh, it uh, usually causes, uh, it's an it's a important cause of pneumonia, particularly in very, very young infants. Um, and, you know, in, in previous seasons, um, you know, hospitalizations, particularly for very young infants with uh, viral pneumonias, RSV is one of the more common causes of that. Um, fortunately, it causes a lot of disease, but again, it's, it doesn't cause a lot of hospitalizations. So what, when it does, it can, it can be a real problem for, for very young uh, babies uh, when they're in the hospital. And also in older adults, we're starting to see uh, increased rates in of hospitalization in older adults. And so now we have an RSV, we have RSV vaccines for both babies uh, as well as for older folks um, to reduce the risk of hospitalization. Okay, uh, well, let me uh, ask you this. Uh, should, can you go in and get a vaccine? Now, you know, people are thinking of getting flu vaccinations now. Uh, there's a need for COVID vaccinations. There are RSV. V, uh, should people, is it okay to get all these vaccinations at once or should they be spaced out? Well, I'm going to get my, I did this last year because uh, the data is clear that there's no harm in getting the uh, increased risk in getting the, uh, the COVID and the flu at the same time. So I'm going to do that again like I did last year uh, tomorrow. And then I'll probably wait about a month and, and get the RSV vaccine after that. So I think, okay. I think that's how I'm going to space it out. Okay, that sounds good to me. Uh, our guest in this half hour is uh, Dr. Robert Bollinger, who is a professor of infectious diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, we've been talking about the new wave of COVID uh, that is crossing the nation. Um, we were talking about uh, vaccinations. We'll be back with more of Dr. Bollinger, but we're going to take another break um, for our radio listeners. Um, I, but we will continue the interview with Dr. Bollinger uh, when we um, during the break for our radio listeners. Uh, if you're listening on the radio and you would like to view the show, uh, you can watch it on twitter.com Brad Bannon, and you can also watch it on Facebook.com front slash Deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. We'll be back with more of Dr. Robert Bollinger after this quick break. Okay, welcome back to our radio listeners uh, to more of uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Robert Bollinger, uh, who is a professor of infectious diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. We've been talking about the new wave of COVID uh, sweeping the nation. Well, we've been talking about vaccinations, uh, possible cuts in federal health care programs. Uh, and uh, Dr. Bollinger, besides COVID, uh, what are the major health uh, 
challenges facing this nation. Are we are we uh, should be looking out for other things? I think everybody's aware of COVID, even if they don't want to do anything about it. What other health care? Uh, are there any other infectious disease challenges that are lurking in the wings? Well, looks there's lots. Uh, there's always going to be uh, infectious disease challenges lurking in the wings. I think the things that I think about um, include, uh, you know, spreading of what we call drug-resistant infections, the infections for which we're we don't have uh, sufficient antibiotics presently to treat. Um, we've had uh, some of the first, for example, uh, transmissions of malaria in the United States in many decades, just in the last year, in in, a, in Florida and and even here in, in Maryland, we had a case. Uh, recently. So, you know, uh, what what affects the world affects us ultimately, right? And um, that's true for infectious diseases. But I think the other thing that we got we have to keep in mind and a lesson learned from the COVID epidemic is that, look, one of the reasons we had so many um, uh, just awful deaths and, and serious illnesses is because a lot of our population has under, have underlying heart conditions and, and diabetes and, and cancer and other underlying conditions that uh, put us at great risk compared to a lot of other countries. Our rates of of, of those underlying conditions are much higher than, than they should be. And so, you know, uh, even even uh, addressing issues like that are going to be important. Um, and if we had a better handle on things like diabetes and heart disease, we would have had fewer COVID-related deaths, for example. So, you know, we, we have a lot of issues uh, that are high priority for our country uh, in, in the health area that that are beyond just infectious diseases would you say you've noticed people's attitudes changing towards the the pandemic as you know numbers of the deaths have gone down um and if so you know how how should people kind of be treating it i know you know at the beginning it was there was a lot of unknowns there were a lot of unknowns whereas now um you know we have a lot more data and like you said you know and i think the clip pointed out most of us know someone who has covid right now so you know how we act right now is going to have a big impact on um you know these numbers that we're experiencing with the pandemic yeah i think obviously uh you know uh Attitudes have changed about, for example, masking and quarantines and the other things that we were we, we, we addressed earlier in the epidemic before the vaccines were really available and we such had such high death and hospitalization rates. We're not there at that situation now. Uh, but I think that for folks that are still at high risk, uh, people that certainly people that are unvaccinated or people that are uh, have underlying heart, dis- uh, you know, underlying conditions uh, put them at higher risk. Um, when the rates are this high in the community, I would certainly think about masking, you know, when you're in enclosed environments, just like we did. And, and it's not a mask mandate. It's really meant to really reduce your risk of getting COVID. The other thing I think, um, you know, that we're starting to learn is that um, uh, even people that have mild disease uh, are at greater risk for long COVID symptoms. And so, you know, I would think in general, I certainly would not want to get multiple bouts of COVID uh, and increase my risk of not only becoming ill, but but having long COVID complications. And so um, there's lots of reasons to be a little more cautious when the rates are this high. But for most of us, the risk of serious disease is, is quite low. Um, I think if you're uh, if you're living with or around people who are uh, have immune suppression, you want to reduce your risk of bringing it home for you know, to them or exposing, you know, your relatives or friends who are at high risk. And so, um, you know, that that's another consideration. I think uh, 
masking not only protects the person who's wearing the mask, but it, it uh, can protect others as well. If you happen to have a mild case of COVID and don't realize it, um, you can you can reduce the risk that you're exposing others. Um, so it really depends on the individual situation people find themselves in, how they weigh that risk and benefit. And for parents out there who are you know, always looking at different health information for their children and want to go ahead and get vaccinated, but maybe are, you know, concerned about the safety of a vaccination right when it's released. You know, I've heard that from some of my peers, you know, having younger children myself, whereas, you know, I, I don't have necessarily the same hesitations, but I can understand, you know, they're just trying to check safety and eff- efficacy. But at the point where it's been already approved, it's gone through testing to get to that point that should give people, um, I would say, you know, just from a layperson reading it, the, the news, give people some comfort in knowing that it's safe uh, for their children to get this vaccination. But for someone like yourself who, you know, has a lot more of that detailed information, what would you say to someone who's experiencing that maybe hesitancy on making that decision? No, again, I, I agree with you. I can understand uh, the hesitancy people have, um, but I would just reassure people that tens and tens of millions of children have safely gotten these vaccines all over the world, not just the United States. <clears throat> and as I said, I think um, you have to weigh the risks and benefits between vaccination and unvaccination for your children. And as I said, we're seeing an increase now, particularly in your unvaccinated kids under the age of five being hospitalized um, just in the last uh, month. Um, and that's going to continue to go up because the vaccination rates are lower in those young kids. Um, and so you have to weigh the risks and benefits. And I think the safety is well you know, documented. Um, there's no 100% safe vaccine for anything, of course. But uh, the risk of getting COVID or the risk of long COVID uh, greatly outweighs any, any potential risk of, of complications from the vaccine, even for young kids. So that change, you know, as the as it the the vaccine is changed, you know, and they update the booster, uh, it, is that not that big of a difference as far as when they, you know, studying the safety of it when the vaccine first came out? Maybe you could just explain that, you know, in layman's terms. Yeah, no, it's a, it's essentially exactly the same vaccine with with just a slightly slight change in the uh, the, the the strain of the, the the COVID virus that's used to generate the vaccine. All the other ingredients are exactly the same as they've always been. The way it's manufactured, uh, what we call the adjuvants, the other uh, you know, the other chemicals that are included in a vaccine that uh, to help it uh, work and to and to you know transport it. Those are all exactly what they've always been. And then you you mentioned this, and I think you know it's it's an attractive option for people being able to, you know, you're already going to get your flu shot. And, and for those of us who have already looked and done it, you know, a lot of the websites of the um, different pharmacies, like I know, for instance, Rite Aid and Walgreens, and I've heard CVS give you the option to schedule both your uh, COVID vaccine as well, a COVID booster, as well as your flu shot. Um, you know, as far as a concern of people getting those two together, I know, obviously, you know, you said you're going to be getting them together. Um, is that, is there anything, people really don't have anything to worry about as far as getting them at the same time, pretty much. Is that correct? No, from, I mean, certainly for myself, I, you know, I'm going to get a sore arm from both vaccines as I have had in the past. I just as soon get it over with, uh, with at the same time. So I'm, I'm not concerned about it. And then, um, you know, finally, as people, you know, have, have, really viewed this, I think, you know, if you look at it from the start, 
uh, I think really the medical community and those who, um, you know, created basically these, these vaccines and the way that they work, um, if you really take a step back, I think it's pretty amazing if you look at how far we've come in the time that, you know, COVID-19 first became a health concern for people in this country and what a difference time has made in uh, getting people vaccinated. Uh, can you just speak to that in our last minute here? Yeah, it's, it's just uh, an incredible achievement. Um, I've been thinking recently, I, I lost three colleagues to COVID, three oh. infectious colleagues to COVID. And two of them I lost in the same week in January 2021, I guess it would have been. Yeah. Wow. I'm so sorry. And I think often about uh, those two, those folks in particular and how they, they, they most likely would not have died if they'd lived a few months longer and, uh, and were able to be vaccinated. That The vaccine would have you know, very much reduced the risk that any of them would have died. So, And, and that's just one anecdote uh, that applies to millions, right? Um, and so it's this, the vaccines have saved millions of lives. Um, if we hadn't been able to pull it off as quickly as we did, um, we would have lost a, a lot more than we, when we, we did, which was unfortunate enough. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bollinger, for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, if you can find more uh, of Brad at BannonCR.com, this has been Mark Grimaldi, pitch hitting for Brad Bannon. Thank you to our guests, Charlie Cook and Dr. Bob Bollinger, and we'll be back next week. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Dr. Bollinger. Take care. Take care. Bye.